18th century theologian and evangelist John Wesley, founder of the Methodist Church, made this entry five years prior to his death in his journal. On June 28, 1776, six days before the United States became a country, he made this journal entry. He says this in English. He says, I'm a better preacher now at 73 than I was at 23. And he suggests five things that attribute to this. The first, he says, traveling 4,000 years, 4,000 miles a year provides me fresh air and exercise. And he's not traveling the same way that we would travel 4,000 miles by car or airplane. He's talking about traveling out in the air, walking, horseback, some way. Second thing he says is I'm an early riser. Third, when I go to sleep at night, I'm asleep as soon as my head hits the pillow. Fourth, he says I don't pull any all-nighters. I get a good night's rest every night. Fifth, he says even the four illnesses that I've had have served to strengthen me. And then he ends by saying this. After saying that he's even-tempered, he ends with these words. I feel and grieve, but by the grace of God, I fret at nothing. Worry at nothing. He's human. He still has feelings. Occasionally he's saddened by the events of his life, but he worries about nothing. Can we say that today? We have feelings. We're occasionally saddened by the things that happen in our lives, but we worry about nothing. The fact is that we humans worry about a lot of things. We're very good at worrying. On September 17th, 2017, the British newspaper Daily Mail listed these as the top 10 things that we worry about. Work, money, being late, a friend or relative's health, our own health, relationships, missing a plane or bus, not waking up to our alarm, our appearance, and our family's safety. A few things that just happen to miss the top 10, growing old alone, our pet's health, being the victim of a crime, terrorism, and getting cheated on. The study also found that 84% of us, 84% of us have lost sleep over worrying. And 60% say it's affecting our relationships. Teens, it's not just an adult problem. Teens are not immune. Here's your list. Getting good grades. I realize for some of you that may seem foreign as a worry, but to some that's a worry. Your appearance, your body image, preparing for the future, loneliness, juggling priorities. Not only are we a people that worries and worry well, worry about many things, but apparently we can't tell the difference between what we should worry about and what we shouldn't. 
Jeffrey Kluger, writing for Time Magazine in 2006, says this. Shadowed by peril as we are, you'd think we'd get pretty good at distinguishing the risks likeliest to do us in from the ones that are statistical long shots. But you would be wrong. We agonize over avian flu, which has to date killed precisely no one in the U.S. <laughs> but we have to be cajoled into getting vaccinated for the common flu, which contributes to the death of 36,000 Americans each year. We wring our hands over the mad cow pathogen, which might be, but almost certainly isn't, in our hamburger, and worry far less about the cholesterol that contributes to heart disease that kills 700,000 of us annually. We pride ourselves in being the only species that understands the concept of risk, yet we have a confounding habit of worrying about mere possibilities while ignoring probabilities, building barriers against perceived dangers while leaving ourselves exposed to the real ones. Shoppers still look askance at a bag of spinach for fear of E. coli while filling their carts with fat-sodden french fries and salt-crusted nachos. We put filters on faucets, install air ionizers in our homes, and lather ourselves with antibacterial soap. We used to measure contaminants down to the parts per million, says Dan McGinn, a former Capitol Hill staff member and now a private consultant. Now we measure it in parts per billion. At the same time, 20% of adults still smoke. Nearly 20% of drivers and more than 30% of backseat passengers still don't use seatbelts. Two-thirds of us are overweight or overbeast. We dash across the street against the light, build our homes in hurricane-prone areas, and then when they're demolished by a storm, we build them in the exact same spot. Shadowed by peril as we are, you'd think we'd get pretty good at distinguishing the risks likeliest to do a sin from the ones that are statistical long shots, but you are wrong. Charles F. Kettering says that we should worry about the future. After all, it's where we're going to spend the rest of our lives, right? Worry. What should we do with worry? Well, that brings us to today's passage, the Sermon on the Mount. We continue that topic. Last week in Megan's talk, she talked about money versus God, which was going to become our master. To those that choose God, Jesus continues the discussion with these words in Matthew 6, 25 to 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about your clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, 
you of little faith. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom, his kingdom, and his righteousness, and all these things will be given you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Randy Roberts, in his teaching on this passage back in 2008, said that this passage could be summed up in six words, three pairs of words. And I'm going to borrow those as my outline for this morning. The first pair of words, what if? What if? What if I can't pay the bills next week? Or what if my money runs out before the end of the month? What if that lump turns out to be malignant? What if my son makes a bad decision? What if I don't get that job? What if I don't pass that test? What if, what if, what if? Worry, worry, worry. It is said that if we spend too much time living regretfully in the past or if we spend too much time anxiously worrying about the future, that we will miss living well in the present. Francis Chan says that worry implies that we don't quite trust God, that God is big enough, powerful enough, or loving enough to care of what's happening in our lives. The National Institute of Mental Health and the World Health Organization on Mental Health tell us that anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the U.S., affecting 40 million adults in the United States, age 18 and older, or 18.1% of the population each year. So what is our solution to the what-if problem? September 1988, Bobby McFerrin released an a cappella song that was the first a cappella song ever to reach the number one spot on the Billboard 100 songs. Not only was it a hit song, but the title became an instantly popular saying around the globe and is still well known today. And it is, don't worry, be happy. It's a great slogan. It's a great slogan. Maybe the answer to our worry problem. I remember back in, 19, in the 1980s, as a company, we were going what was through training that was called CQI training, continuous quality improvement. Some of you may have heard that term. As we were going through that, we went through an exercise. We had this exercise where there was this box, and it had marbles in it, about 30 marbles in it, and it had two compartments, an upper compartment and a lower compartment, and it had little holes in it. And there was a mixture of marbles. There were red marbles and there were blue marbles. We called them beads. But you shake, the exercise was you're supposed to shake it up and flip it over and these marbles drop down through the thing. A certain number of them do. And then you count how many of them turned out blue. And the objective was is to eliminate all of the blue beads. No blue beads, right? That was the objective. 
And so they kind of joked about all the things that we do to try to improve quality, right? Like, and one of them was put up all these posters around the walls that say, no more blue beads. And that will do it, right? And then you go back after you put them up and you shake the thing and you flip it over and guess what? The same percentage of blue bleed showed up as it did before. You have to actually do something to make a change, right? We actually had to do something with that box or the marbles or something to make it change to where we would get fewer blue beads, right? So just putting a poster up or just saying a slogan, don't worry, be happy, isn't quite enough. And so part two of this passage Dr. Roberts suggests the next two pair of words are seek first. Seek first. So what does seek first mean? What does that look like? If that's Jesus' answer to the worry problem, what does that mean? Seek first. Well, Henry Nouwen in his book, Making All Things New, provides some thoughts on what seek first might look like. He says, it is important for us to realize that Jesus in no way wants us to leave our many-faceted world. Rather, he wants us to live in it, but firmly rooted in the center of all things. Jesus does not speak about a change of activities, a change of contacts, or even a change of pace. He speaks about a change of heart. This is the meaning of set your hearts on the kingdom first, and all these things will be given you as well. So God does not want to remove us from this world. He doesn't even want to remove us from the things that we consider bad that happen to us occasionally. What he wants is for us to view all of the many aspects of our lives through a different lens. One made different by a changed heart. One that seeks God first. Because if we choose to do this, our perspective on all of the other aspects of our lives change. We see things differently. Late in life, I've learned to distinguish the difference between worry and concern. And here's the way I would describe it. They sound a lot alike, but they're actually miles apart when it comes to how I respond to them. Worry, worry is something I can do nothing about. I can wring my hands, I become anxious, I can allow it to eat me up, but concern is different. And concern is different because it is actionable. There is something I can do about concern. The difference is your son, your daughter's out late at night. They're out on a date and they're supposed to be home by midnight. It's 11, it's 11.30, it's midnight. It's a little after, 11, a little after midnight and you're worried. There's nothing you can do that will will your child to come home sooner. It just isn't gonna happen. That's worry, something you can do nothing about. Concern is, I've got a friend that's in trouble and needs help. If I'm able to go provide that help, then that's actionable, and that's a valid thing for us to do. To have concerns is valid and healthy. Worry is not. For the Christian, I would like to suggest that this passage makes it clear that all worries 
should become concerns. And that the first action that we should take for either one is prayer. Prayer changes things. Prayer changes things. Prayer sends angels and the Holy Spirit where otherwise they would be unwelcome. And prayer changes us. It helps us view the world differently and reprioritize our lives. We all remember the story of Mary and Martha. When Jesus came to visit the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha and, and Martha was doing the cooking and Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to him and Martha complains. Jesus, seriously? You're going to leave me in the kitchen slaving away while Mary's just sitting out here, in her opinion, doing nothing? But Jesus corrected her thinking with these words. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first also includes the thought that we are looking or seeking where God is already at work. Dad and mom have told me the story. I have a hard time believing this, but this is what they claim happened. A number of times when I was as a four-year-old, I would run out into our backyard, into the space between all of our homes in our neighborhood where all the homes are fairly close together, and announced to the other children already gathered, here I am, everybody. <laughs> Sometimes we may be tempted to think, man, God should be really thankful that I showed up. We need to remember that we are not the main thing. We do not bring God into a place. God is already there and he is already at work. And seek first carries with it the thought that we will bow to God's will and not the other way around. Lead singer for you 2 and Christian philanthropist Bono in a 2013 interview with Focus on the Family says it this way. He says his pastor told him to stop asking God to bless what you're doing, Bono. He said, find out what God is doing. And Bono continues, and when you align yourself with God's purpose as described in the scriptures, something special happens in your life. You're in alignment. You start to get into alignment. Rick Warren in The Purpose Driven Life puts it this way, God is at work at the world and he wants you to join him. So the answer to the what if question, God answers, seek first. And that brings us to the last of the six words, the third pair. And that can be summed up and paraphrased in the words, God will. What if? 
Seek first, God will. Verse 33 of our passage says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. All you need, not all you want. And there's a big difference. Food might be Taco Bell instead of Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. Clothes, it might be The Gap instead of Gucci or Prada. Shelter might be a one-room apartment instead of a mansion on the hill. The God will part is much broader than just our physical needs. More importantly, God is saying that if we will align with him, if we will seek him first, he will provide for all of our spiritual needs as well. Addressing the sin problem, Jesus' promise is as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your skins are, sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. As far as the future, and this is what he has promised us, eternal life. And when we bring our worries to him, thereby transitioning them from worry to concern, Jesus says, peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give you. You may recall several weeks ago we talked about the difference between big and bigger. And we recognize that God's, God is going to take care of the bigger stuff in our lives. And we, I think we all have a, have a very firm belief in that. We believe that God is going to take care of those bigger things. The eternal life, the sins being taken care of, my past being covered. We believe that God is going to take care of that. But our faith may waver a little when it gets to just the big things, the brass tacks of everyday life. In May of 1995, 34-year-old construction worker Randy Reed was working on a water tower in Chicago. When he stretched for a tool, the scaffolding shifted, and the unharnessed construction worker fell 110 feet, face down. He narrowly missed rock and construction debris and landed on a pile of soft dirt that enabled him to miraculously survive the fall. As paramedics arrived, secured, they secured Randy's neck and back, placed him carefully on the gurney, and began to carry him three feet off the ground toward the ambulance. Randy uttered a few words. They leaned down to listen in to what he was saying, and he uttered them again. Please, don't drop me. And we say to God, God, I know you've got me covered with the big stuff. I know you've got me covered there. But please, 
don't drop me on the small stuff. Don't drop me on the issues that I face day in and day out. And God must smile at how ridiculous that must sound to one that cares for the lilies and the sparrows. What if, to the question, what if, Jesus responds, seek first. And his promise is that if we seek first, God will take care of us. Francis Chan tells us that worry declares our tendency to forget that we've been forgiven, that our lives are brief, and that in the context of God's strength, our problems are small indeed. In closing, may we learn to live the words offered to us by the 18th century French priest Jean-Claude de Cossade. To escape the distress caused by regret for the past or fear about the future, this is the rule to follow. Leave the past to the infinite mercy of God. The future to his good providence. Give the present wholly to his love by being faithful to his grace. Father in heaven, it is my prayer today for all of us that when we are tempted, when we are tempted to worry, May we come to you and transition that worry to concern. And may we all take the action of bringing that concern to you. And Father, when we seek first the kingdom of God, may we believe the promise that all things needful for this life will be added unto us. And Lord, may we turn all of our carries, all of our concerns and our worries to you. In Jesus' name, amen.